This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to Something Rhymes With Purple. This is a podcast about words and language and much else besides. Um, In fact, today, Giles Brandreth and I, and I will introduce Giles in a second, are going to tackle one of the biggest themes of life, a universal theme. So it's a big, big topic for us today. Uh, And actually, it's quite relevant to the person who is sitting opposite me on my screen in his Zoom dungeon, um, Giles Brandris, because Giles, you seem to make the most of every hour of the day. And today's theme is time. How do you find the time to do as much as you do? I'll tell you, because I want to ask you a question, a big question too. And it's relevant to what I'm going to say to you now. When I was a small boy, I was sent away to a, a prep school. This is, I say this for our international listeners, because I think in America, a prep school is something you go to when you're in your teens. But in this country, a prep school is a kind of independent school that is preparing you for your public school, which is not your public school at all. It's a private school. Oh, language is complicated. Anyway, and there was a headmaster of this prep school called Mr. Stocks. And he gave me five words of advice when I was eight or nine years of age. He simply said to me, Brandreth, busy people are happy people. Remember that. And I think from that day to this, I've remembered those five words, busy people, happy people. I just say yes, and I do lots of things. The last few days, I have to say, I've almost done too much, because on Friday, I was in Chester, and the Chancellor of the University of Chester had giving out degrees. On and Then I went back to London, because I had an engagement that evening in London. Then on Saturday, I went to Harrogate, but that was wonderful, because I went to the Harrogate Theatre. Yeah. A beautiful theatre. Have you been to it? Built in 1900. Yeah. It's fabulous. It is all the, all the greats have been there. Sarah Bernhardt have been there. But the next day, I had to be in High Wycombe. Uh, Sarah Bernhardt's theatre on Saturday night, Sunday night. Well, at least Rod Hull and Emu had been to this theatre. So I was following the footsteps of greats. So every day, something new, which is what I like. Now, what I wanted to ask you, mm. before we get round to time and how we fill time, is... Was there anything ever said to you when you were a girl like those words that I think really have been formative in my life, busy people, happy people? Was any advice given to you or did any teacher influence you in a way that actually has touched your whole life? Um, I've been offered so many pieces of wisdom in the course of my life, but I'm not sure that many of them have stuck. Uh, So, for example, the one that I often return to is, uh, and a lot of people have said this to me, from from sort of my mum to my earliest teachers to my dad, I mean, everybody, stop worrying about what other people think. And I partially take that in, I partially absorb it, and and then it just kind of gets lost and I go back to kind of thinking, oh gosh, but how is that going to look? So that's the one thing I wish I could get rid of. But when it comes to time... I think I have actually really improved in carving out some time for me, particularly with COVID, which is, you know, I've just recovered from. And I knew that I could 
try and weather it and just sit at my desk for days on end and, and try and keep writing. Or I could just succumb and uh, watch endless episodes of Borgen, which is my absolute new favourite, which is the Danish parliament drama. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and I did the latter. And you know what? It was just so necessary and so lovely. And so I think I am finding niches of time I didn't have before, unlike you, because you seem to fill every space in your diary. But I remember you saying to me that if you're not working, actually, you feel quite depressed. Well, maybe, because I haven't, and this is probably my fault, I have not created other things in my life. But I do have enthusiasms and passions. So of much of what I'm doing is wouldn't seem like work to other people. And I'm very lucky that I have a great deal of variety. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm doing different. I mean, I was a friend of the uh, famous theatre director, Sir Peter Hall, the founder of the Royal Shakespeare Company, later the second director of the National Theatre here in the UK. And he was a workaholic. And uh, he said, well, what's wrong with being a workaholic if you've got interesting work? Of course, ghastly if you're doing, you know, laborious work that doesn't interest you or stimulate you. But if you've got exciting work and varied work to do, how lucky you are. Count your blessings. You mentioned that you've had COVID. Uh, are you feeling better? I am. Just still, as our listeners will discover, uh, still very much mired in brain fog, if you can be mired in fog, <laughs> which is I a classic example of how my brain's not working. I don't. Uh, yeah, just you. very foggy. Your, your fog, your brain in a fog is like most other people's brain on a crystal clear day. I think not. I think with you might be disappointed. Wonderful blue skies. <laughs> so oh, we are going to talk today about time, uh, mm. filling the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth. Uh, of distance run, to quote Kipling. So, time itself, what is the origin of the word time? Yeah, time itself. Well, it is very much related to the word tide. So, oh, there's someone at my door, which is brilliantly well, done. Uh, I haven't seen Lloyd for ages, our postman. Excuse me for one second. Yes, excuse me. Just so now, time wasting here. Susie leaves the room to answer the door. Uh, I don't know the first name of my postperson. And when he does ring on the door, I'm always so disconcerted because he's usually wearing shorts, um, which most people seem to do nowadays. When I was a child, they never wore shorts. Does Lloyd wear shorts sometimes? Uh, he does, actually. That yes. wasn't Lloyd. That was another parcel deliverer. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, he does. Okay. He's great. He's the best postman in the world. Okay. We were talking about time. Time. Yes, it's actually very closely related to tide. And um, these seem to come from very ancient roots. And we're not completely sure of them. Some people believe that it's linked to a Sanskrit word meaning to divide, because obviously when you mark out time, you are dividing day and night into, um, into chunks, if you like. Other people see it as going back to an ancient root meaning for a long time or always indeed. But what we do know is that it is a sibling of tide. And of course, you've got the proverb, time and tide wait for no man. And is that, is that sounds rather poetic, but it's not from Shakespeare or Milton or anybody else. It's older than that, the phrase, is it? It is older than that. And actually, I was surprised by this because I did assume that it was, you know, from Shakespeare's time. So what it means is, is that no one has the power to stop the march of time, you know, no matter how great or how powerful. Uh, and it seems to go back to uh, a proverb dating from at least 1225, the 13th century. And tide here shows its link to time because it didn't refer to the rising and falling of the sea, but indeed to a period of time. So it could be season or a time or a while. Uh, so it's almost tautological time and tide wait for no man are you a good time manager you personally Susie 
I used to be. I used to be too early to things, uh, which was deeply annoying for me because I ended up waiting around for ages. But I have become what is known in Swedish as a tit optimist, uh, a time optimist, meaning I always think I'm going to get there on time, but I'm usually just a tiny bit late. But generally, for work, for filming, etc., in studio, I am pretty much on time. How about you? You're always on time, actually, I think, aren't you? Uh, well, I try to be always on time. Yes, I am very busy all the time, and I sometimes wish I wasn't quite so busy. It's why it, the best moments in my life are when I disappear and sit in the back of a Starbucks or a Cafe Nero with no obligation, you know, just there for half an hour. It's a sort of gained thing. And there is, of course, there's the famous uh, Parkinson's Law, um, do you know the origin of Parkinson's law? No. You remember what Parkinson's law is? Parkinson's law is, it's an adage really that says work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. <laughs> yes, you know? that is true. Um, and this was first promulgated in the mid-1950s by um, C. Northcott Parkinson. He wrote an article, I think, for The Economist and then sort of turned it into a book. And it led to all sorts of other uh, uh, interesting and amusing laws. But this one has, I think, some validity to it. You know, if you've got that long to fulfill a task, mm. it takes that long. Yeah. That's the reason I always wait for it. When I've got an article to write, you I write a column deadline. every month for, for a magazine for the oldie. I only write it the day before I've got to deliver it. Because otherwise, I would just be, you know, it would go on and on and on. Whereas mm. if I know I've only got that morning to do that article, I do it in that time. So here we are with time. We've found the origin of time. Mm. Have we discussed before the units of time? We may have done hours and minutes and seconds. I think we probably have. Remind me what, what, where they come from. I mean, the history of timekeeping is absolutely fascinating. And obviously, it's ancient and uh, originally was done by the stars, the sun, uh, and nighttime. And people divided things up in very, very different ways using different mechanisms, whether, as I say, it was from observing the stars or observing the sun, etc., or actually using sundials or water timekeepers. Yeah, I mean, we can, we can talk about those in a minute. But when it comes to the seconds and the minutes, so the second, as in one sixtieth of a minute, that comes from secunda pars minuta, the second diminished part, because originally the hour was divided into 60 parts once, which created prima pars minuta, the first diminished part or the prime minute, and then divided again for the secunda pars minuta or the second minute. And those were eventually shortened to minute and second. I wonder why it's 60 as opposed to, you mm. know, divided into a hundredths. Hundredths would make more sense, wouldn't it? I don't know. Well, it is quite complicated the way that people broke time periods up, if you like. So the Egyptians broke the period from sunrise to sunset into 12 equal parts. So that gives us the forerunner of today's hours, if you like. But their hour wasn't a constant length of time. It was really complicated. It was a kind of variable thing because it varied with the length of the day and it varied with the seasons, etc. And then the need for a way of measuring time independently gave rise to people looking for various devices like sunglasses and water clocks and, and that kind of thing to try and measure time. But they weren't very accurate. And for most of history, you know, people were trying to find something that they could regularly access that didn't depend on the sun, for example. Because within religion, you know, with the Benedictine monks, they had 
really important regulated prayer time. So they needed something as well. Um, so we've been looking for these for ages, but I think going back to your question as to why there were 60, why we divide the hour into 60 minutes and then the minute into 60 seconds, it's ancient. I think it might go back to the Babylonians who counted in 60s for their study of mathematics and astronomy. But if purple people uh, know more than me, which is totally probable, I would love to hear because I, I think it does go back to the these ancient civilizations, but why they conceived it in 60s, I'm not sure. And what I want purple people to explain to me is why the same amount of time feels much longer or much shorter, depending on what you're doing. As in the yeah. famous story of the person who went to a Wagner opera, which began at 7.30, uh, three hours later, he looked at his watch and it was only 10 to 8. Um, <laughs> sometimes if you're in the company of the most brilliant and beautiful person in the world, uh, I feel time has just gone. We've just hardly started talking and it's over. Other times when I was with my late great uncle Albert, um, even having as a child, you know, just a cup of tea and a digestive biscuit with him for half an hour seemed to take years. <laughs> so it, it does vary, doesn't it? Well, it Curious does vary. I, I tell you when I most notice time just sort of ticking down in the most kind of relentless way is when I put the bins out every week because I can't believe it's bin day again. Do you know what I mean? It just feels like I'm I'm on a sort of hamster wheel, where it's just kind of or or a kind of film that's been speeded up of me kind of pushing the bin in and out, in and out, in and out, and and that just that kind of underlines for me that it is just kind of inexorable, really. Well, wait till you get to my age, Susie Dent. I mean, it's terrifying. It's almost next Christmas, um, yeah. and when we get to next Christmas, it'll be almost immediately the Christmas after. I mean, it it is as the years go by, it goes faster and faster and faster. Yeah, quite alarming. So. We better seize. We better seize the moment. Uh, our our is the word that gives us horology, isn't it? It is, yes. And horology is the technical. Is term. that the study of time or the study it of is. clocks? It's the science of measuring ah. time. Yeah, so it kind of encompasses both, really. And clock is a nice one because clock is actually linked to a cloche. Oh. A cloche, which is a bell, but it's also a hat, isn't it? And it's related to clock as well, because all of these are bell-shaped and they go back to the Latin clocker, C-L-O-C-C-A, meaning a bell. It reminds me of the beginning of one of my favourite poems. I am having a rapprochement with galoshes. And some would say this heralds middle age. Yes, sneering, they would say, does he also wear pince-nez? Old jossers wore galoshes when women's hats were cloches. And I think it's the sort of 1930s, those hats that looked a little bit like the bells. Yes. So horology is the science of measuring time. Clock is lovely coming from cloche. What about alarm clock? Because mm. actually, if you stop to think about it, alarm is quite frightening. It what is, is the origin of, of, of the alarm clock? And it was quite frightening. And I think we have talked about this before, actually, because it's it always reminds me of alert as well. So alarm is from the Italian alla arme, meaning to arms. So it would be a rallying cry to soldiers to pick up their weapons and prepare to fight the enemy. So actually, it was pretty serious. And alert goes back to the Italian alla erte, to the watchtower. In other words, go and look and be on the lookout and beware. Yeah, so the alarm clock that kind of annoys us from our bedside table actually has quite profound origins, really. Well, because a lot of people no longer have alarm clocks. I don't have them because it's on my mobile phone. That's where I set the alarm. But I used to have a rather handsome grandfather clock in the hallway mm. until the day many years ago when my son, when he was a little boy, attached a 
piece of string from this the alarm, the, the grandfather clock, from the door of the alarm clock, of the grandfather clock, to the banisters, to jump over as a kind of, you know, uh, anyway, he created a high jump and he tripped and he pulled the grandfather clock, this wonderful old grandfather clock, to the ground and it shattered. Uh, the clock mechanism was fine, oh, and we no. still have that, but the wood shattered. So we used to have a grandfather clock. Why is a grandfather clock so called? Oh, it always go, it goes back to an American song, an incredibly popular song that sold over a million copies in sheet music, at least. And it was written by an American songwriter. In 1875, he wrote something. Well, no, first of all, in 1875, he actually stayed in a hotel in Yorkshire. Now, he was called Henry Clay Work. And it is said that in the foyer of the same hotel, there was a broken, beautiful, long case clock. And he was totally fascinated by this. And in some accounts of it, there are you know quite complicated stories as to how it was uh, it was broken, but still remained the sort of symbol of the hotel. And so he wrote a song about it, which opens with the line, "My grandfather's clock was too large for the shelf." And it's definitely worth reading about because it's a lovely, lovely story. But uh, yeah, so he related it to a particular grandfather. And of course it fits because grandfather clocks are very sort of large and stately, aren't they? And authoritative really. And then there's the grandmother clock, which is slightly smaller. They are beautiful, beautiful things. Do you have one? Uh, well, uh, we had one, the one that shattered on the floor. But oh, yes, we have the sorry. remains. We have the workings of it. We oh. have got the face of it and, and the, the, the the thing that goes tick, 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 yeah. tick, tick, and the weight. We've got one. all that. But we haven't got a new one. We decided no. not to replace it. Mm. And uh, 30 years on, I'm, 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 I'm still <laughs> reprimanding my son most days uh, about it. But he has got, I mean, every gizmo you can imagine. He no longer has an alarm clock. He does everything via what seems, what looks to me like a wristwatch. But it also is, it's a computer. He pays his bills on it. It's got his, you know, his, everything on his, on his watch. Now, what is, is the word watch? Where does that come from? How long have watches been around? And is the watch that you're, is it to do with the verb to watch? Are we watching the time on our watch? Yes. Uh, it is. It, it is all to do with that. Just just before we um, we go on to that, I have a similar watch, but I don't use it very often because whenever my phone rings and I know I can answer it on my watch that I'm that I have on my wrist, I feel like a spy. It just feels absolutely ridiculous <laughs> talking to your arm. Um, so there is something very sort of full of sub subterfuge about it, really. Uh, you now see anyway. people in the streets wandering down the street, just sort of talking into thin air and gesticulating. They're obviously talking to somebody on, on yes, either one of these watches. or uh, yeah. You get used to it. I mean, if, when I was a child, people like that were either arrested <laughs> or people in white coats came and took them in a caring way uh, off to a home of some sort. Yes, now, we avoided it all. Now, we're cost. all doing it. No, we are, with our little um, earpieces. But yes, go back to watch. And so in Old English... To watch meant to remain awake. And so it comes from the same root as wake and awake. And the reason why it was connected with timepieces is because the first watches, this was in the 15th century, were alarm clocks of some kind. So their function was to wake you up. Now, I don't quite know what those actual alarms were, but it basically was connect, you know, still connected with that idea of being or remaining awake which is why we have a watch for the dead, for example, as well. Very good. And and indeed, in Shakespeare, there are characters who are the watchmen, you know, who go out and, and keep the watch um, overnight, telling you what time it is. And then we get, I suppose, 
the pocket watch, which was a, one of these little watches that you kept in your pocket, uh, leading on to the wrist watch. And then we have the fob watch as well. Oh, what's a fob watch? A fob watch is the one where you've got a chain attached to it for carrying in a waistcoat. I imagine you might have a fob watch. I like the idea of a fob watch. Um, and in Harry Potter, of course, they have um, witch watches. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but fob, a fob watch, I, I like the history of this because it might be linked to fobbing someone off. Because if you fob someone off, you cheat or deceive them, don't you? And that goes back to medieval days. Uh, so we're not completely sure, but the fob that is the small pocket in the waistband of a pair of breeches, which you put your watch in, hence a fob watch, there may be a link to the idea of deceiving because the pocket was secret. So you were guarding it against deceivers. In other words, pickpockets. So you put your watch or whatever valuable you have in this little fob, this little pocket, and as I say, guard against being swindled. So there probably is a link between the fob watch and, and fobbing someone off. I'm just looking at my clock and I think we're in the nick of time <laughs> for our little break. And when we come back, I want to know why it's the nick of time. Oh, okay. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Something Rhymes with Purple, and I'm Giles Brandreth, about to ask Susie Dent, because we're talking all about time, the phrase, in the nick of time, meaning just in time. Why is it the nick of time? Well, they have to go back to the old tally sticks. So to keep tally uh, of something looks back to the tallies or the notches that were scored into a piece of wood. Uh, so you would put in a notch every time you owed some money, for example. So say you were driving, drinking a tavern, instead of opening a, a sort of, you know, putting something on tick or on credit or whatever, you would score a notch or the publican would score a notch in a tally stick. And that would accurately display how much money was owed. So from this sense of notch, cut or groove, Nick then went to to kind of mean anything that was very, very precise. So in the nick of time was a metaphor for a little notch or a groove that indicated when something absolutely had to be done, the precise or critical time or moment. And in the mid-16th century, it was simply in the nick or in the very nick. And now we elaborate a little bit and call it in the nick of time. But those tally sticks gave us keeping tally. They gave us scoring because, of course, if you score a piece of wood, you were cutting it with a knife. So a football score actually looks back to that old method of calculating. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually, I think, how keeping check from that point of view has percolated into lots of different English expressions. In a jiffy, where does that mm. come from? 
No one knows. I, I've really? done a little bit of detective work on this. So the dictionary will tell you late 18th century of unknown origin. But some people will point to the use of jiffy to mean 33 trillionths of a second. In other words, if you do something in a jiffy, you do it very, very quickly indeed. But the jury is still out on this one. I have to say that um, detective work goes on. Well, also this trillionth of a, a second, that can't date back to, if, if the word's been around since the end of the 18th century, that means about the year... Uh, 1785 17, is the first... Forgive me, first 1785 century. is the first use of it. Well, did they have trillionths in those days? No, so it couldn't be Prob- the trillionth of a second. Probably not. I mean, the first record that we have is uh, someone saying in 1785, and it's a travelogue, in six jiffies I found myself and all my retinue at the Rock of Gibraltar. Uh, so it was six jiffies ah. uh, originally. Nothing to do with the jiffy bag, which is a proprietary name, isn't it, for the sort of padded envelope. Um, and they may, have yeah. used, they may have taken that word because it has a kind of speedy, we'll get something from A to B in our jiffy exactly. bag. Yes. It has a kind of, um, like one of those words that might come to us from the Indian subcontinent, jiffy. Do you think it could yeah, possibly. be one of those words? Quite possibly. But as I say, the work still goes on because nothing has been found uh, so far. Um, you know, we've been talking about timepieces, etc. The one thing I would love to tell you about is the clepsydra, which is a water... I've never heard of it. Oh, it's their I've so never beautiful. heard of a clepsydra. It sounds like an unfortunate illness. Oh, I'm afraid I've got a touch of the clepsydra. It's, <laughs> it it's, it's the chill, you know. Mm. It does. Well, it's one of the oldest time measuring instruments that we have. And the ancient Egyptians probably invented what is essentially the clepsydra or a water clock. And it It essentially keeps time by measuring the rate of water flowing from one container into another. So much like the sand in a traditional hourglass, uh, for example. And the Greeks, who then took it on and improved it, gave it the name clepsydra from their words, kleptain, meaning to steal, steal, and hydor, meaning water. Now, if you remember that kleptain meaning to steal and the clepsydra, that also gave us kleptomania, the compulsion Uh to steal. But using the same idea of stealing time. And that's why I love it so much. It's the idea of kind of stealing it in some way. A klepsamia is a really old word for a sand timer, or as I say, what we would today call an hourglass. I love hourglasses. I could be transfixed by them. I just love watching them and feeling that flow. Yes. I'm sure I've told you before about the person who put their husband's ashes into an hourglass, into a big egg timer, saying he did not useful during his life. He can do something (laughs) useful now. And there it was That's in not the a bad idea, glass. actually. Uh, the ancient Egyptians, I seem to recall from school, used obelisks as timepieces, like a kind of vertical sundial. Is that right? Have I got that yeah, right? Yeah, I think they did. I don't think I've ever seen... I, I think we need to go to a time museum, don't we? Uh, yes, obelisks were used for lots and lots of different things. So an obelisk really is a stone pillar, isn't it, that's used to commemorate an event or honour the gods um, originally. But in terms of timekeeping, that was definitely the the shape. And it, and it had this, uh, this sort of similar function, if you like, that the moving shadows formed a kind of sundial and that enabled people to kind of divide the day into morning and afternoon. So it was all about where the shadows fell. And a sundial, the sun part we understand, but the dial part, why is a sundial so-called? Yeah, well, a dial is essentially... Uh, well, it's obviously the face of a clock or a watch these days, but it's always had that idea of 
almost like a mariner's compass. I think that was probably the, the, the sort of first meaning of it. But it is linked very much to this idea of timekeeping because it goes back to the Latin dies, meaning day. So it was a way of kind of dividing the day into convenient chunks of time. Do you have a favourite time of the day? Ah, yes. I think it would probably be just as I'm drifting off to sleep. I love that. That's mm. just sort of... You and I have talked about what the Anglo-Saxons called the uchtkear, which is the, the sort of grief of the dawn where you're just kind of lying awake and, and really worrying. It's actually, it usually comes just before dawn, doesn't it, where you're sort of feeling uh, alone with your worries, I suppose. And by contrast, I think just before you drift off into sleep is just a lovely period of kind of security somehow. How about you? I have two good times of the day. I do like six o'clock. If I'm having a break between, if that's the end of a working day, I reward myself with my my glass of Fortman Mason's uh, sparkling tea. Sparkling tea. Uh, so I like that moment. But actually, I like dawn, daybreak, or even just before, if I've got up. I don't like it if I'm lying there worrying. I like it if I'm able to get up and get going. And I love being at the desk at 6 a.m., not before, because that's two. That's still the night. But six a.m. with a cup of tea at the desk, getting ahead of the world, and that hour between six and seven, before people start calling you, before the emails start coming in, when you are ahead of the game, that's for me the best <laughs> time of the day. Very Brandreth, that I have to say, it's impressive. <laughs> no, it's happy. It's really happy. Um, I have to say, and you feel, you do feel fresh. Um, they say, you know, a stitch in time saves nine. Trying to think, there, there are probably lots of proverbs to do with time, aren't there? But that actually has nothing to do with time. A stitch in time. It's to do with the stitching, isn't it? I assume it means if you mend something, one stitch at the beginning of something unraveling will save you having to do nine stitches later. Exactly right. So deal with a problem promptly and then you will avoid the need for greater effort later on. But nine was was introduced arbitrarily, we think, just because it, it's got that sort of assonance with time. But yeah, it's not it's not particularly linked to the theme of time, but it is very old. 1710 is the first record of a stitch in time saves nine. Um, we have some lovely, lovely correspondence that have come in actually oh, I, I don't think it's particularly related to time but i really uh, enjoyed looking through these so should we have a quick look and see what's in the bag let's see what people are corresponding with us about and if you've got further thoughts on time or questions about time it waits for no man nor for any woman either so get in touch with us it's purple at something else.com who's been in touch and what have they been in touch about susie uh, we have an email from Pete Van Fleet. What name? Uh, he says he was wondering about goats, sports goats in particular. Uh, as a child, Pete said, he had a book that was titled something like Sport, Heroes and Goats and went on to tell the stories of those who succeeded in the biggest moments, who were the heroes, and those who succumbed to the pressure, who were goats. But now I see the word goat being used to describe those who've done really well. When did this term change and why? So the positive GOAT is an acronym, isn't it? Or an initialism, G-O-A-T, which stands for what? Greatest of all time. The greatest of all time is a GOAT. But in yes. the old days, the hero was the up there person and the GOAT was the, you know, the giddy GOAT, the silly GOAT, the, well, 
That's, yes. Is that, I, I never heard that expression I before. haven't heard you? it either. I do feel like goats, rather like mules, get a bit of a rough ride in English. Um, I like goats. But uh, yes, I have not heard of that kind of comparison or contrast, if you like, between heroes and goats. But I can tell you a bit about the acronym, the G-O-A-T. So if I was to say to you, Giles, the greatest of all time, is there any particular person that would spring to mind? Yes, i tell you why. Muhammad Ali, the boxer, because he said he was. Exactly and right. He looked so good. He was extremely handsome. He obviously was right fit and very strong, but he was amusing and um, boasted about being the greatest of all time in such a charming way that it stuck in my head. So I'm going to say greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali. Spot on. Absolutely spot on, because the earliest use that we have of GOAT as an acronym is as the name of a company that Muhammad Ali owned. So you're absolutely right. He frequently referred to himself as the greatest of all time. So the first quote we have is 1965. And from there, it uh, crept into mainstream use when when talking about sports people in particular, um, the GOAT. Well done. Well done, him. Now, what about this? Uh, We've heard from Ian in Essex. Hi, Susie and Giles. I'm an avid movie buff and many times have heard the word rookie used, usually to refer to a young trainee police officer still learning the ropes. It's a strange word and I wonder if you know its origins. It sounds like it could be short for something, but I can't work out what. Many thanks for your fantastic podcast. Kind regards, Ian, Essex. Oh, it's a nice message. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, what's the answer? Rookie. Where does it come from, Susie? Rookie. Well, Ian says that he wonders if it's short for something, and our best guess is that it is. So the origin is a little bit uncertain, I would say, but the dictionary suggests that it's a shortening of recruit. So rookie going back to recruit. But there may also be a link, as there so often is, because there's so many little tendrils coming from other words that sort of, you know, they all kind of merge into this kind of composite picture that's hard to unpick. But we think it might be linked with the rook, the bird, which also gave us rook as a verb, meaning to swindle at someone, perhaps because the rooks are seen as being sort of slightly unscrupulous. So it might have an association with rooking or swindling someone, perhaps because new recruits were a little bit gullible and and sort of easier to cheat. Uh, So that's our best guess. But it reminded me of snooker, actually, because one very popular theory about the origin of of the name of the sport, snooker, is that it is a use of the term for a newly joined cadet. So we know that Sir Neville Chamberlain called his fellow officers snookers and particularly when they played this game which was particularly very very popular um, amongst officers and if they were very sort of raw and not particularly good at it at the beginning the idea is that they were a kind of newbie if you like and so if you've been snookered you have been thoroughly outdone by somebody who's a little bit better so it reminded me of that the snooker the new recruit and I think it does sound plausible that rookie does somehow play on recruit and uh, just became a slang term from there. Good. If you have got questions for Susie, or indeed for me, just get in touch with us. We're purple at somethingelse.com. That's the best way to reach us. The best way to improve your vocabulary is to keep a notebook, and in it each week record the three interesting, intriguing, unusual words that Susie Dent introduces us to, or in some cases, reintroduces us to, because some of them I've actually heard of. Not many, it must be said. What trio have you got for us this week? 
I have um, one you might have heard of, actually. It's usually Australian slang, and it is a bowerbird. Do you know what a bowerbird is? No. This is no a, idea. a sort of metaphorical use. It is a collector of knickknacks, also known as a knickknackitarian, which I think has been one of my trios in the past. But somebody who collects fairly useless objects is a bowerbird. I like my Victorian slang, as you know, Giles. So I like the fact that they called sausages bags of mystery, that they called hands your daddies, um, that they called umbrellas your bumber shoots, etc. Here's another <laughs> one that is actually linked to umbrellas. A mush faker. A mush faker Ooh. was Victorian slang for an umbrella repairer. I mean, that was a job once. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so they were, because an umbrella looks a bit like a mushroom, they kind of were a mushroom faker, if you like. So they were sort of designers and repairers of this um, strange looking object. So that's the second one, a mush faker. And the third is somewhere, well, I have to say, I've been feeling since COVID quite lazy or lubberly, um, where, you know, actually all I want to do is be horizontal and close my eyes. And so I think I would like a trip to Lubberland. And Lubberland you will find from the 16th century in the OED, and it's a mythical paradise reserved for those who are lazy. Lubberland. Lubberland. I love it. It's yes, a, it's got I'm a off to Lubberland. To off to Lubberland. And I should just say, Giles, that each trio that I come up with is also included in the programme description for each episode, so the purple people can find them there. And uh, you have a poem for us, I hope. I have a poem, and if you like poetry, incidentally, I ought to mention that we do have our special club that people can join, and we've done a little series um, for the club about individual poets, just some fun things. What do we call the club? The Purple Plus Club, she said as she slurps her tea. The Purple Plus Club, which you can join by with a little subscription, and then you can get the show ad-free as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're interested in that, um, feel free to join us. We've talked about all sorts, haven't we? We've talked about Wordle, we've talked about cheese, um, and as you say, some of your favourite poets. This is a poem called The Year's Midnight, and it's written by Gillian Clark. And I was looking at poems that had a connection with time, the passage of time, and Gillian Clark is a, a, a wonderful Welsh poet, now I think in her mid-80s, but she's got a way with words that for me is, is quite um, hypnotic. The Year's Midnight. The flown, the fallen, the golden ones, the deciduous dead, all gone to ground, to dust, to sand, borne on the shoulders of the wind. Listen, they are whispering now while the world talks and the ice melts and the seas rise. Look at the trees. Every leaf scar is a bud expecting a future. The earth speaks in parables, the burning bush, The rainbow promises, promises. Promises, promises of time. That's beautiful. Thank you. And I love poems that are like that, that you don't quite understand, but there's Mm. something there that's intriguing. Anyway. And wistful. I like the wistful poems. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for joining us always because you are, well, really special to us. And that sounds incredibly cheesy. Um, And in fact, I think, aren't we going to be talking about cheese in our uh, in our next episode when we're talking about photography say cheese and i shall give you what my alternative to say cheese is which i think is even more effective and by the way if you're listening to this live as it were on the first day it goes out you can it'll be a back catalogue forever but if you're listening to it live it's just coming up to april the 23rd traditionally shakespeare's birthday so give yourself a treat for shakespeare's birthday and 
read a Shakespeare sonnet. Oh, lovely idea. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production. It was produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, uh, from Jay Beale, from Teddy, who is doing our tech today. And if I could bless someone out. Oh, we've forgotten all about him. What was his name? Bully? Sully? Mully? No. Oh, golly. Yeah, he's off mush faking somewhere. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov extrahelp extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.